Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, The Role of God the Spirit in Salvation. Just by introduction, we're presently undertaking a series here on Words of Grace on the respective roles of the three persons of the triune Godhead in our salvation. That is to say, the role of God the Father, the role of God the Son, and today, the role of God the Spirit in saving sinners from their sins. Our theme passage for this particular sermon series is the book of Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. That passage summarizing for us the phases, if you will, of salvation, what God has done to save us from our sins. We have the covenant phase, God foreknowing and predestinating, and that is attributed in Scripture to God the Father. We have the legal redemptive phase of salvation, where God the Son died upon the cross for God's people, as we studied last week here on Words of Grace. The Lord Jesus was a sin-bearer for us. He who knew no sin was made to be sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And next we find the vital phase of salvation, the work of the Holy Spirit in saving us from our sins. And these phases of salvation here, foreknowing and predestinating the covenant phase, justifying the legal phase, the redemptive phase, and then calling, which would be the vital phase of salvation. All of these three things happen to a person to save them from their sins, and all of the people who are saved have had all of these things happen to them. And every person that has one of these phases of salvation happen to them will have the other two phases of salvation happen to them. All of those who were foreknown and predestinated were justified by Christ on the cross, and all of those that are justified by Christ on the cross will be called of the Holy Spirit sometime between their conception and their death. They will come to know the Lord in a vital sense. They will be born of the Spirit of God. And this is what we refer to as, again, the vital phase of salvation, the work of salvation that is attributed to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Now, as we have emphasized in this sermon series, the fact that we have these three distinct phases of salvation performed by the three persons of the Godhead, this very much emphatically declares Trinitarianism. You simply can't deny Trinitarianism if you read the Word of God with honesty and accuracy. We have simultaneously at the baptism of Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all present at once. The Father speaks as His Son is baptized, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit descends upon the Son of God in the form of a dove. He descends upon the Lord in His baptism. So Trinitarianism is an undeniable biblical fact, one that we emphasize often here on Words of Grace. God exists 
eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sometimes people think of that as a New Testament concept, but you have references to the Son of God in the Old Testament. You have references to God being a Father in the Old Testament. In the second Psalm, kiss the Son lest he be angry. You have how he's called the Everlasting Father in Isaiah's writings. And if you notice in the book of Genesis chapter 1, as far as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, immediately after God has created the heaven and the earth, in the very beginning, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Listen to this. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, what's so interesting about Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 God creates the heaven and the earth. The Spirit of God is there present. And then you notice where it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God said. The Word of God, the eternal Word of God, attributed to creation, is the Lord Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son. So it's not a stretch or any sort of twisting of even the earliest chapter of the book of Genesis to affirm Trinitarianism, but certainly the New Testament emphatically declares to us this concept that God is a three-in-one Godhead, that the Godhead is three-in-one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The passage that I unapologetically use to proclaim this because it's accepted by the church throughout church history as authentic as 1 John 5, 7, the Yohanan comma, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Baptism is to be in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It's undeniable that God is a trinity, and God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all have distinct roles in saving people from their sins. God the Father has ordained people to salvation. God the Son died for those ordained, and the Holy Spirit calls people. He saves people in a vital sense from their sins. They pass from death unto life in Christ through the immediate operation of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we talk about the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit, we'll use primarily the word spirit instead of the word ghost, but that's only because it's the word that I more commonly use in my everyday vocabulary. As we say Holy Spirit, versus Holy Ghost, please understand that the words ghost and spirit translate from the same Greek term. They are synonyms in the English language, ghost and spirit. They're not different things. There's not a different person of the Godhead intended as it relates to Holy Ghost versus Holy Spirit, nor is there even a difference in manifestation or administration of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, as those two different terms are used. More than likely, the reason that we find spirit versus ghost in the King James Bible, which is a translation I use, is because the translator simply sought out words that had similar phonetics as they translated the Word of God from the original languages. And so if you notice in the Bible, there are a lot of O or ah sounds, the word ghost will be used. If you notice a lot of E or I sounds, the word spirit will be used just to make the passage flow. There's a reason the King James Bible is easier to memorize than other translations, and especially the newer translations of the Word of God into English— and it's because the translators gave it a sort of a cadence. They gave it a sort of a rhyme. And this is one of the greatest features of a King James Bible. It's easy to put to music and to a rhythm, to time, as it were. And so that's why Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit, I believe, are used in various passages in the Word of God. But as we say Holy Ghost, 
or Holy Spirit. We have reference to the third person of the three-in-one Godhead. The three-in-one God, there's no rank among them, there's no subordination among them, but they are co-eternal, co-equal Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. As we consider the role of the Holy Spirit today in our salvation, just to reiterate, the Holy Spirit quickens those who were ordained by God the Father and redeemed or justified by God the Son. Now, we emphasize this in our first broadcast, and we've already emphasized it today. God the Father foreknew and predestinated people to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's Romans 8.29. In Romans 8.30, we read that those who are predestinated are called, and those who are called are justified. And because of that, as we will consider next week, as we consider the finality of salvation, the end of salvation, what all of this is leading towards in our lives, we shall be glorified because of the predestinating of the Father, the justifying of the Son, and the calling of the Holy Spirit. We will be glorified. We'll be raised again incorruptible. We will have glorified bodies for all of eternity. And what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As far as this vital phase of salvation is concerned, I've already used a couple of words today. Here in Romans chapter 8, one of the terms for this phase of salvation is calling. That is to say that we are called from death and sin to life in Christ. Now, there are various callings that God can give a man or a woman in their lifetime. The gifts and callings, plural, of God are without repentance. There are multiple callings that God gives us in this life. Anything that God has told you to do, God has called you to do. But as it relates to this passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, called here, calling, has reference to the new birth. When we literally go from death in sin to life in Christ, we are called to life by the Lord. This is attributed to the voice of the Son of God, in the book of John chapter 5, but the work itself is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Now, along those lines, while this is the work of the Holy Spirit, the three-in-one God is in complete and perfect harmony and unity about all things, including our salvation. So, while we refer to this as the new birth, the work of the Spirit in salvation, etc., we also read that those who know Christ, are drawn to him by the Father. And they know Christ through the new birth, but it's God the Father that draws them. And as we just emphasized from John chapter 5, while they are born again by the Holy Spirit in their life, the voice of the Son of God is what calls them. So while we believe in a three-in-one God, we also believe in a three-in-one God. And so while God is is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is but one God, and there is complete and perfect unity and harmony between these three persons of the Godhead. Now, by the way, you and I cannot explain that. And any time a preacher or a radio host or a theologian, an author, whoever it is, attempts to go beyond what Scripture says, and rather than simply presenting what the Bible says about the three-in-one God to giving metaphors and analogies and ways to try to help you understand the three-in-one God, they run the risk of committing any number of ancient or maybe even modern heresies 
about the Trinity. And we certainly don't want to be guilty of heresy. We don't want to be guilty of inventing a fake version of God and then worshiping that version of God, because that would be idolatry. We simply want to believe what the Bible says about the three-in-one God. So suffice it to say, there are three. These three are yet one, and there is but one God, one God who, when he speaks to himself, says, let us make man in our image, and uses a plural term when speaking to his singular self. And so you and I can't really understand that, but we trust that one day we will know him even as we are known of him. We will be able to understand this as we leave this time world cursed by sin with our finite, fickle minds. There will be a day when we understand a whole lot more about God than we understand about him now. We see now as but through a glass darkly. But we will perfectly know him, I believe, one day. Now, as far as this phase of salvation, there are a few different terms that we find it listed under in Scripture. The vital phase of salvation, being called of God from death in sin to life in Christ. We obviously have this referred to as calling here in Romans chapter 8, but other passages of Scripture refer to this as the new birth, as quickening, as regeneration, as a resurrection, as translation, and even as an act of creation. So we find all of these different metaphors or word pictures, whatever word you want to use to describe this. We find all of these different terms for this concept in the Bible. When a person goes from being an enemy of God, lost, dead in their sin— to being someone who knows God, the laws of God being written on his heart and mine and his inward parts, as we recently considered here on Words of Grace, the heart and stony heart being taken away, and a heart of flesh, a heart of feeling, a heart that can be impacted by the word being given to them. And this happens at the new birth. Now, before considering explicit references of this from the word of God, and the place that we'll turn to do that, first of all, is the book of John chapter 3. Just to follow up on a question that we asked last week as we considered the redemptive or legal phase of salvation, when Christ died upon the cross, when he was perfect and upright, when he took our sinfulness upon himself, though he had no sin, he took our iniquity upon him and he died upon the cross. The iniquity of all of God's sheep were laid upon him, was laid upon him. We consider this question, if God the Father has ordained me to eternal life, then why did the Son need to die? Well, the Son needed to die for you because you were still yet legally a sinner. And so someone had to pay the penalty that you deserved, and that person was the Son of God. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son to die for them. And so Jesus came into the world as the Son of God to die for us, that we would not see condemnation. But the same question could be asked about the vital phase of salvation. You might think, if God the Father ordained me to eternal life, and God the Son died for me, taking away my guilt, why then do I need this vital phase of salvation that we know is the new birth? And the answer is simply this. You and I, prior to salvation, were dead in trespasses and in sins. We were exactly as Adam was after his transgression. We're not only legally sinners, but we're also dead in sin. Remember what David said in the Psalms. He said that he was conceived in sin, and he was shapen in iniquity. 
And that doesn't mean that David's parents were sinning when they had him. He was the last of a long line of children. In saying that he was shapen in iniquity and conceived in sin, that means from the very moment of his conception, he was a sinner. And as he developed in the womb and the gestation process, he grew into a bigger sinner. As he was born into the world, he was born into the world as a sinner, and as such, we all come forth from the womb speaking lies. We are dead in sin until the Holy Spirit spiritually resurrects us, quickens us, regenerates us, creates us anew unto good works in Christ Jesus, or as we'll see today, until we are born again by the immediate working of the Holy Spirit. We must be born again. And so just because we were ordained to salvation and because our sin was taken away doesn't mean that something personally doesn't need to happen to us in our own individual lives. Certainly it does. Just like there's yet a phase of our salvation, the final phase coming, when we're either glorified if we are alive at the time of the coming of Christ or we are resurrected from the dead raised again in an incorruptible, glorified body. And so even after personal vital salvation, there's still something that's going to happen to you to prepare you to stand before God for all of eternity. Moving on, let's consider the explicit reference to the new birth in the Word of God. And this is going to come from the book of John chapter 3. This is the most detailed, explicit reference. It's informative and relevant. It's a striking passage of Scripture, and it's the passage from which we primarily get the language born again. In the book of John chapter 3, there was a Pharisee. His name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews, and he came to Jesus at night and asks him, tells him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, this is interesting to me for one very important reason. This man comes to Jesus not in the middle of the day to tempt Jesus. He's not sent there as a temptation to catch Jesus with his words, but he comes by night and he confesses Christ. Now, there are Jews in John chapter 10 that did not believe in Jesus, and Jesus tells them, you believe not because you're not of my sheep. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you believe not. You're not of my sheep. As I said unto you, these people that come to Jesus in John 10, they reject him and everything about him because they don't belong to him. Nicodemus is different. He comes to Jesus and he says, Master, we, and there were at least some Pharisees who did believe in Jesus, secret believers, but most of them were wicked, lost individuals. Nicodemus says, Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. He basically says, Jesus, I know that you've come from God. I know that you have come from God. Think about the significance of that statement. Not that God has merely raised you up as a man or a prophet, but you came from God. As Jesus refers to that later on in this conversation, he says, no man ascends to heaven, but he who descended, even he who is yet with the Father in heaven. So there's more alluded to in that statement than we realize. He's basically saying, I know that God has sent you. I know that you are the Son of God, basically is what Nicodemus is saying. And so Jesus replies to Nicodemus, and he says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto thee. Now he says this unto Nicodemus in the singular, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So many times people reword that to say, I say unto you, Nicodemus, 
unless you get born again, you're not going to see heaven one day. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, except a man be born again, in the generic sense, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus can see that Jesus has come from God, and Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't see that. I believe Nicodemus has been worked on by the Holy Spirit, in other words. Take it for what it says, not how people reword it. Nicodemus says, Master, I know that you've come from God. And Jesus said, no man can see that. He can't see the kingdom unless he's been born again. Well, Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. Does that mean that he's not born again? Do you have to know all biblical mysteries to really and truly be a child of God? Well, there are some preachers that tell you that that's the case, but that's not the case. Many of God's children have a very weak understanding of the Word of God. And to be quite frank, in our modern American day, very few believers have a strong grasp on any Bible doctrine, let alone this one. Nicodemus is confused, like maybe some of you hearing this today are confused. And he says, can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb the second time and be born? In whatever way you think he means that. The answer to that question is no, a man cannot be born another time. And to be very frank, if a man could be born an additional time, which he would not be, nor would his mother submit to him being born a second time, even if he could be born a second time, this would only be a flesh birth. It would only be a birth of Adam. This is Adam being multiplied. Every time a human being is conceived and born into the world, Jesus doesn't have reference to a second physical birth. He has reference to another birth from another source. Jesus answers and says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, I read both of those statements at the same time because I believe that the water birth that he's talking about is being born of flesh. If you've ever seen a birth happen live, which I have six times, the five children that we have, and when my twin boys were stillborn about 11 years ago. One thing that epitomizes being born into this world of the flesh is that of water. Now, to be very clear, Jesus is not saying that you have to be born physically before you can be born again. That's not the point here. What he's saying is that there's a birth that is needed in addition to being born of water. There's a birth that's needed to see the kingdom of heaven, to know who Jesus is, and to one day go to heaven that is in addition to being born, conceived, to being a human being, to being born of the flesh, etc. You need an additional birth, a second birth, born from above, born from another source. And so that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You need a second birth, is what Jesus is saying to him. Now, Nicodemus might be confused by that, but Jesus says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Now, that's the part that people often twist and make a statement about Jesus telling Nicodemus he personally needed to get born again. Now, Jesus actually uses a plural Greek word here, and he has reference to humanity. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Nicodemus, don't marvel that I said humanity must be born again to see the kingdom of God, to perceive spiritual things, to one day go to heaven, etc. Marvel not that I said unto thee these things, again, that people must be born again to see the kingdom. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. 
so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Jesus right here gives us a rule, with no exception, explaining how the new birth is accomplished. The new birth is accomplished just as the wind blows. Now, what does that mean? Well, can you and I control the wind? No, we can't. Do we decide when the wind blows? No, we don't. Can we make the wind go to a place or stop blowing in another place? No. We hear the sound thereof, but we can't tell where it comes and where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, this is a passage that you never hear emphasized in modern Christendom, but listen, the new birth is like the blowing of the wind. God is sovereign in the new birth, just as God is sovereign in the blowing of the wind. Mankind are passive and helpless in the blowing of the wind. Men are passive and helpless in the quickening of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is something that God does. Now, plugging in the rest of this series on salvation, why does God the Spirit do this? Because God the Father has ordained people to life. Because God the Father has ordained people to salvation. God the Son has died for those people. God the Spirit will quicken those people, the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in salvation. Nicodemus asks a question, how can these things be? And Jesus says, are you a master in Israel and you don't know these things? In other words, saying, look, you're a Pharisee, you should know this. From the Old Testament, you have enough information to come to this conclusion in the Old Testament. Now, three points from that. To see the kingdom of heaven in this life, that is to perceive spiritual things, and to go to heaven one day, we need a second birth from a second source, a different source, a spiritual birth. Number two, this birth enables people to see and enter the kingdom, whether here or the final phase of the kingdom, in glory. And third, this is by God's sovereign will and control, just like the wind. Now, just to emphasize and to clarify perhaps a question that some people have, maybe you have to do something to cause this to be. Notice 2 Timothy chapter 1, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. When was this purposed? Well, before the world began in the covenant phase of salvation. And so we have been saved and called with a holy calling, not according to our works. In the book of Titus, chapter 3, we read very similar language, that we have been regenerated. We've been saved by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. That eliminates things such as baptism or any other thing that we do as causing our new birth. We are born again directly by God. Now, as we close the broadcast today, let me just read off a few of these synonyms in Scripture that describe this event that we call the new birth, the vital phase of salvation. Ephesians 2.1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. We have been quickened, brought to life, when we were dead in trespasses and in sins. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We were quickened, that is, made alive, but we're also acts of creation, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. We have been made recipients of a spiritual resurrection similar to being quickened in the book of John chapter 5 and verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. 
The verse before that says, If you hear his word and you believe on him that sent him, you have everlasting life and you shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. The reason you believe is because you have passed from death unto life. And then lastly, in the book of Colossians, we read that we have been translated from the powers of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. This is Colossians 1.13. God has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. In every single one of those word pictures, quickening, creation, being resurrected, being translated, being born, you'll notice that the recipient is passive. You had nothing to do with your birth. The universe had nothing to do with creation. Lazarus had nothing to do when he was resurrected. And if you're reading the translation of the Word of God from the original language, that translation had nothing to do in translating itself. Simply put, salvation is of the Lord, including the vital phase of salvation when we go from death in sin to life in Christ. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.